You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast. I have Matthew Johnson. Uh, he's an expert on psychedelics. He's an associate professor at Johns Hopkins. Um, he's been working with psychedelics for approximately 15 plus years, and he's published 119 papers, 47 specifically on psychedelics. He's helped to establish safety guidelines uh, and to guide research into them. And I know that uh, Tim Ferriss, amongst a lot of other people, uh, very interested in psychedelics and how they could be used to help people with PTSD, et cetera. So, Matthew, welcome. Thanks for coming. Richard, great to be with you. Yeah, if you don't mind, what's what's your history? Like, why this area of research? What got you into it? Yeah, so it's it's a fascinating area. I'm a, I'm a, an experimental psychologist or, or a research psychologist, and I'm uh, one of the things I do is study decision-making, um, particularly in addictions. And... Uh, so for me, it's the, the, the most interesting thing about psychedelics is their ability to serve as behavior change agents. I mean, the number of people who have said that psychedelics have made big changes in their lives, you know, be it in addiction recovery or in terms of you know, making a, a change in the direction of their life, they, these anecdotes just abound. And it's also consistent with the ceremonial use of these compounds in a variety of indigenous cultures. So for me, the interest goes back to um, my undergraduate days in college when I stumbled across this history of psychedelics being seriously investigated in the 50s through the 70s, um, including you know not just neuroscience, uh, experimental research, but also therapeutic research in treating addiction and other disorders. And so I became very interested, wrote papers on this, and, and uh, fortunately was able to start research in this area. After I finished my PhD, I started my postdoctoral fellowship here at Johns Hopkins um, and, and, and became involved with psychedelic research. And I've continued it ever since. And here we are 15 years later. And it seems wow. like the world kind of you know, kind of caught on within the last year, <laughs> you know, okay. um, yeah, I mean, interest is coming out of the woodwork uh, about this research, which is, which is awesome. So um, you talked briefly about anecdotes from people saying that they had essentially, I guess, a transformative experience. Um, do you think that's because the experience of being on psychedelics, I don't know, it, uh, it just seems to be a very dramatic, again, uh, transformative, maybe, I don't know, how much, how much of a religious component do you think enters into it? A lot of people seem to say that they felt the presence of God or felt 
they just had like a spiritual, uh, I don't know, a journey when they took a psychedelic. Like how prevalent is that in the anecdotes and what role do you think that plays? So the language gets really tricky here and, and it really kind of depends on what we mean by religious. In terms of nominally religious, um, I, I don't see any evidence that that is critical at all. I think so much of what we're seeing with these effects is if you come in with a, an overt religious orientation, um, that can color the way you describe these experiences. But I've seen too many, you know, atheists come in, come into these experiences that come out atheists. And I'm more struck by the, you know, the lack of change in, in those sort of overt descriptors of worldview um, just kind of the, the language surrounding these things is, is being rather superficial. And I think the interesting stuff is the commonalities. So, you know, you have people that are religious and then you have folks that are so-called spiritual, but not religious. And then you have a whole chunk of folks who are, you know, none of the above. They think anything with the term spiritual is a bunch of mumbo jumbo. And that's um, understandable because, you know, spiritual can mean, so many different things. On the one hand, it, you ask someone coming out of one of these sessions whether it was spiritual, and they'll say, "Well, no, I didn't see any, you know, angels or you know, crystals or anything like that." Um, but they'll say, you know, for example, that you know they felt connected with the rest of humanity at some level, and and really pondered their 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 deep relationships with their family and their loved ones saw this kind of big picture of, the, of their life and the role that they're playing um, in this life and, and, and focus and a focus on the meaning in their life. And they might, you know, one person might, might say, well, of course, that's the definition of spirituality. And those are sort of the humanistic aspects that any secular clinician will tell you, like, yeah, that's what you want from anybody, you know, atheist, agnostic, religious, you know, what have you. You know, feeling connected with others, uh, finding purpose and meaning in life. So there's just a real variation in, in how people orient towards these experiences. Often people have people have experiences that they'll label mysterious and ineffable. They'll they'll have an experience that just kind of defies words. And I think that's kind of a big mystery where we tend to fill in the blank with our own worldview, um, be it nominally religious or spiritual or or otherwise we do have evidence that that that's sort of something like a transcendental or so-called mystical experience is predictive of long-term positive benefit but that does not hinge on whether it's nominally about religious content uh nor whether it's about supernatural content so this is more to do whether the person had a sense of unity um transcending time and space, these types of qualities, which are more psychological in nature. Yeah, that's a good clarification. Okay, interesting. So um, whether someone's religious or spiritual or not, um, the commonality lies elsewhere. The commonality lies in having what they describe as a mystical or indescribable experience. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. It's, yeah, and the rest is just sort of coloring as I see it. Huh, interesting. So does that... um, having a mystical experience, does that seem to correlate with the strength of the experience? Like, is there a certain threshold over which the experience is effective or not, or a threshold below, which is not really that impactful? 
Right. So the mystical nature of the experience is correlated with the overall strength of the experience, how intense the experience is, according to the person's report. But it's not a perfect correlation. And the interesting thing is that we find these associations where the long-term positive benefit, whether it be quitting smoking or being less depressed or anxious in cancer patients or just a so-called healthy normal um, saying they're doing better in life, we find that the, the, the mystical nature of the experience during the session is predictive of those long-term benefits after controlling for how intense the experience was, just the drug strength. So there does, even though they're related, the drug strength and the mystical nature, for example, this sense of connection and unity of all things, it seems that there is something special above and beyond just the strength of the drug effect. And that's what really makes it interesting, suggesting it's not just a drug effect. It's something about the nature of this experience, the qualitative nature of the experience that's predictive of long-term beneficial outcomes. So it's, it's I think of it... it even though it's prompted by a medication, so there's clearly a biology, and we know a good amount about that biology, this is really in many ways more like a learning experience. It has more in common with what we know about good behavioral therapies, psychotherapy, than it does with other you know, psychiatric medications. Any other um, themes or trends and anecdotes that really fire up your curiosity or are strange to you or interesting? Well, gosh, there's anecdotes about... Um, kind of out there in the wild, so to speak, about the treatment of any number of disorders. And we're starting to, to follow up on that. We're starting a study with anorexia treatment. Um, and I've received a number of compelling anecdotes about that, um, uh, about use of a psychedelic leading to, you know, some level of recovery from anorexia. In terms of in our studies, just the, the individual anecdotes abound. Um, uh, gosh, well, I mean, there's... Um... Mm-hmm. Have you directly observed a patient to be one way, then they come in and they do one or more treatments, and then you can tell without them self-reporting that they've become a different person? Have you observed that, or has any staff observed that to people? Or is this all self-reported, like the person tells you, oh, I don't feel depressed anymore, or, or is it like obvious to an outside observer, any of these? So that's a great question, and, and we've actually very specifically addressed that in some of our early research with Healthy Normals. And by healthy normals, I mean people without a disorder to fix. They're just, you know, coming in, you know, willing to volunteer for a study. The, so we actually recruited so-called community observers um, who signed consent to be a research participant, not to receive the drug, but just to give us ongoing feedback on the person they know who did take the drug. So these were wives, husbands, um, coworkers, friends, other family members of of the person in the study receiving psilocybin. And so not only did that person on average report long-term positive outcomes, but those community observers also reported um, positive behavior and attitude change in those individuals. So that's one example um, coming from our early research. Also, I can certainly speak to our smoking cessation study one of the reasons, so these are people who had tried to quit smoking a number of times and have been unable to do so long-term, and so we, we provide a psilocybin intervention uh, to see if that can help them quit smoking. One of the reasons I was attracted to that is specifically because of your question, oh, are these just kind of stories, and, and people are convinced that they've had this life-changing event, 
is there really some meat to it? And the nice thing about smoking is you can, it's one, it's a behavior that you can change. You're either smoking or not, but also it's easily biologically verifiable. So they've been either smoking or not, but we're not even just relying on their self-report. We can have them blow through a machine which measures carbon monoxide, a, a byproduct of smoking, and, and also provide a urine sample that measures cotinine, a byproduct of, of nicotine. And so we can biologically verify whether they're telling the truth when they say they've quit smoking, not one, but in two different ways. And so we have shown very large success rates in people who have quit smoking. In our pilot study, we found that 80% of participants were smoke-free six months after the quit date. Um, biologically confirmed with both of those methods. And that's just substantially higher that typically you get rates no better than 30, 40% for the best medication at six months. So yeah, that's, that's probably in my book, the strongest example of like, yeah, this isn't just people fooling themselves and, and fooling us that they've had some life changing experience. There's some real behavior change when, when the, when the rubber meets the road. Is there a common reasoning or explanation? Like, do you ask people, you know, why, why this time? Why were you able to quit smoking? Or why do you feel differently about cancer? Or why do you have less stress? And do the people report, like, do, do the reasons why the people give that have gone through the experiment, do they have any commonality? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I, I think one of the big things that's popping out in a number of ways is that there's a commonality across these different disorders. And I should also mention we've looked at, we, we, we're working on the publication now, but we've also dealt with depressed people outside of cancer, just straight up depression. And we're seeing some very positive results there as well. And our colleagues um, in London at Imperial College have, have re- published some similar research with depression. Um, across the, both the, the treatment of, of addictions and uh, the treatment of depression and anxiety inside or outside of cancer, it really does appear that people are more easily able to deal with um, their emotions. It seems that so-called, you know, the scientific lingo of, of affective processing seems to be very relevant here. So there's this, um, for example, in addiction treatment, it seems that people um, are reporting that the, the emotional aspects of, of nicotine withdrawal, for example, are less severe than other times where they quit. Whereas the bodily symptoms will be about the same. And so I think that's a kind of a commonality across these disorders. And people will say anecdotally that, you know, that they're, they're better able to deal with, with stress and triggers, whether it be nicotine or, you know, kind of how you deal with a bad day in terms of depression. But you also see, um, and sometimes it's idiosyncratic the way they describe it, but people tend to talk about big picture stuff. And they're often able to kind of say that the things that they told themselves a million times, now they really feel. They kind of get the big picture. Like, for example, in cancer, the idea that, um, you know, even though they have this this illness that they're dealing with, you know, they're not dead yet. And they can still get out at this point and enjoy life, you know, be with their children, their grandchildren, their family, um, other people. And, and that's so, that realizing that so much of their suffering was what they were creating, not a direct result of the cancer, but them kind of getting themselves stuck into this very suboptimal place of suffering. Um, and so that's in common across the addictions and the, and the other disorders, the depression inside and outside of cancer. And people will 
yeah, say that they they just sort of kind of get these big picture lessons. Um, it, it seems that the brain works in a very different way where people are able better able to absorb these big picture insights. Are there conditions for which you know, psychedelics have helped that like really surprised you? And are there conditions for which it doesn't help that also surprised you? Yeah, well, we're still testing the boundaries. So some of these things that we're about to start or have recently started could be that the, those are boundary conditions. So, you know, we, we, we don't know yet. Fortunately, everything that we've looked at, and there hasn't been that you know, great a number of things, but the things we have looked at, it has looked very promising. So our work with smoking cessation, our work that, with depression, and our work with cancer-related anxiety and depression, the work of my colleague, um, Michael Bogenschutz, uh, at, now at New York University looking at alcoholism, for the preliminary results for cocaine addiction coming from my colleague, Peter Hendricks at University of Alabama, Birmingham. All of this looks promising at this, at this point. Um, but early on, I, um, I was thinking maybe straight up depression wasn't going to be as, as likely of a, of a positive outcome the way that cancer related depression is because dealing with a cancer diagnosis is a very special thing and it doesn't look like your garden variety of depression. Um, and it does seem that there's something about dealing with a potentially fatal illness that, that. A, high, a strong psychedelic session really seems almost tailor-made for. So it, it is encouraging to see that we and others are finding um, effective, you know, uh, positive results for depression outside of cancer. But that said, we're starting a number of things. We're, we're, I recently have funding to look at psilocybin treatment of PTSD um, and opioid dis- use disorder. I mentioned anorexia before. So for any of these things, it could it could turn out that this is not, you know, that it doesn't work. And so we just got to keep following the data. How do you see the path to clinical use? Is it there yet for any of these substances? And, you know, which are closest? Yeah, I think probably the, you know, the closest we'll see, time frame in which we'll see this in straight up clinical use would be sort of five years. Um, and so that depends on so-called phase three trials. Psilocybin is in phase three research for depression at this point. Um, and I think we're going to be there in a, in a couple of years for a number of these other disorders like smoking cessation. So five to, to 10 years, to, to put it generally, I, I think is the time frame we're looking at. Again, following the data, if the data continues to look promising. Um, yeah. And, and I, I think importantly, the biggest thing for folks to know is this is through a straight up FDA pathway. This is not at all like the state level medical cannabis um, referenda or laws that have been passed. This is going, this is actually more analogous to Marinol or, or prescription THC in pill form that was approved in the 1980s and it has pretty much zero controversy surrounding it. So this is not, um, you know, that there is a very clear path. The FDA is actually very excited and they've designated psilocybin um, as a breakthrough therapy for two different organizations moving it along the, the, the therapeutic pathway for depression at this point. So the FDA is very uh, encouraging. They're taking this seriously. Um, there, there isn't kind of the need that there, there was with the, you know, cannabis use to kind of go to the, you know, for medical use, um, you know, resorting to the, you know, local initiatives. So just wanted to let, you know, in terms of pharmaceutical company development, 
in terms of investment, in terms of, you know, the, the whole idea, like, you know, what are the chances that this could go mainstream? I think this is extremely promising because, you know, this is falling right, right along the, the, the FDA, you know, path um, that is well laid out and, it, you know, that involves no inconsistency between state and federal law, anything like that. Yeah, no, that's great. That's excellent that there's, it's, it's, I guess you, you can say coming along the right way or the legal way or the, uh, okay, excellent. What, um, what will it look like, you think, in five or 10 years? Will you go to a psychologist? Will you go to a, a medical doctor? Like who will dispense this and how? And what do you imagine the protocol might be? Yeah, I think it's going to involve actually both psychologists and um you know, medical doctors. Well, one, it is a medication, so it has to involve a medical doctor. It, it may not be a medical doctor who's in the room with you, but they have to be approving, you know, the 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 administration, the prescription of any medication, including this. So, you know, it could be that it's a, a psychiatrist who's the one delivering the treatment, or it could be that, you know, some form of an MD is prescribing it, then it's a psychologist or other a social worker, a master's level um, a therapist who is actually in the room with you. But I think it, it's never going to be take two and call me in the morning. This is going to be more like outpatient therapy. And that's basically the way we're doing the clinical trials. Um, you come in for a day, you've prepared for it through several previous sessions. Um, you're dropped off in the morning you, you, you spend this entire day sort of a, you know, not 8, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. type deal, you know, in, you know, where you have the, the, you're having the psychoactive drug effects in a specialized room, a comfortable, pleasing room with people that you've developed a therapeutic relationship with. You're not out there wandering around because it can be dangerous. And then you're released into the care once the drug is worn off later in the evening with a loved one, just like after you've gotten an endoscopy, for example, or some type of outpatient surgery, um, you're not driving home after the, after the intervention. Someone else drives you home. And then there's a follow-up meeting where you discuss your experience. And depending on the nature of the, um, of the study, there might be more than one. The, the nature of the intervention, the disorder being treated, there might be more than one uh, uh, follow-up uh, sessions where the experience is discussed. But yeah, that's generally how it, it, it's, it's going to look. And then how many sessions does it appear to take to have a significant effect on people? One, two, one, that? Yeah, remarkably, it's in that category. One, two, or three sessions has been the number across our various therapeutic trials. And, and we're still figuring out what the optimal number is. But, but clearly, the, the pattern is it's not going to be you know, daily use. Or, or really any type of frequent, you know, even once a week type use. So it's, um, yeah, I think more work needs to be done in terms of whether, you know, maybe a, a kind of a booster session needs to be done every, for certain individuals, maybe every six months or every year, that type of thing. But we're talking nothing anywhere close to the standard medical psychiatric medication model where a pill is taken every day. Um, so we're still figuring it out, but but we have done, uh, for example, our smoking cessation work, our first study used three sessions. We had very good spread out over eight weeks. We had very good results. We scaled that back to w only one session, um, not because we thought one was better clinically, but more for kind of nerdy experimental reasons, because um, we were combining it with some brain imaging. 
where it really helped scale back to one session. But we're finding very good, promising results with one session. Um, so we're still figuring out what the optimal number of sessions is. But we can generally say it's, yeah, it's only one or a few sessions. Um, and that's really remarkable in a paradigm shifter in psychiatric medication development. You mentioned um, brain scans and looking at brain activity. What have you noticed? Does people's brain activity change or are there other biomarkers or you know, physiology that changes significantly after an experience like this? Yeah, we know a lot, but we're, there's still far more to learn. We know what receptor is hit. It's a subtype of serotonin receptor. Um, we know one of the interesting things that happens is downstream, this causes the network activity in the brain to drastically change. In other words, the communication or synchronization across different brain areas drastically changes. So you get much more communication across brain areas that don't normally communicate so much. And so we suspect that that is related to the long-term effects. We're currently examining that now in my smoking cessation trial. We don't have an answer yet. Um, One of the things I can tell you um, based on some preliminary data in the smoking cessation trial is that the next day people appear to be more able to deal with cognitive interference. They have better cognitive control. They're less likely um, kind of distracted by tempting stimuli um, the next day. And so um, we're seeing some brain response associated with that change. We, it's still preliminary. So we'll see if that, you know, if those results hold up, but it, it does appear that we're seeing some very concrete um, behavioral, cognitive, and biological changes that, that seem so far to correspond with these um, clinical improvements. But that's really where, in terms of the long-term effects, that's where the edge of the science is now. We really don't definitively know what biologically is changing long-term that goes along with these clinical improvements. So if someone's less likely to be depressed or anxious or not smoking six months or a year later, you know, what the heck is biologically different? What's different in the brain at that point? You know, six months after they've taken the drug, for example, um, that's what we don't know. We have some hypotheses, like, for example, whether there's changing, there's a changed permanent way, long-term way in which the brain communicates with itself. We don't have an answer to that yet, but hopefully in the next couple of years, we will have an answer. Have you had an opportunity to do any brain scans or is that like a separate protocol or trial that you're setting up that takes time to do? So we're definitely, we've been doing brain scans in our smoking cessation study. Um, uh, and we, uh, most of that, an, well, the study is still ongoing. So if anyone's interested and they live in the Baltimore area, they should definitely reach out at hopkinspsychedelic.org. But we don't have big answers yet because it is ongoing and because even in a preliminary fashion, we haven't um, processed the data, you know, from most, even our existing participants, we haven't processed all the data. So far, we do see the, that cognitive interference effect, this greater ability to control, to control the mind essentially uh, when it's confronted with conflicting information. And we're seeing a biological change with that, with our brain scans, we're seeing a, a normalization and activity and the right lingual gyrus. So I'm not sure whether that result will hold up in terms of the long-term effects. So I'm a little hesitant to kind of wrap a story around that biological 
you know, around that area at this point, but um, we are, um, we are seeing something so far and we hopefully will have an answer when the study is completed. Excellent. So what do you think, um, I mean, the future five to 10 years out, it looks like clinical use may come, which is great. Are there any other um, experimental arms of this that, you know, we haven't talked about that you think are really fascinating? Oh, I think there's one of the, the big areas for the future and, and a big opportunity for drug development. Um, by big or small pharma um, companies is to look at non-psychedelic versions of some of these compounds. I think what we have going on here are multiple mechanisms of effect. My best guess is that the overt psychedelic experience, the subjective effects, if you will, um, I think they have played more of a role, um, have a role in the long-term uh, therapeutic effects where someone has the story to tell. It's very much about changing their narrative, kind of getting unstuck from a certain way of, of living and thinking about themselves. But my guess is that what we're also seeing is that at these compounds probably induce some form of short-term neuroplasticity that um, some, some evidence early on suggests that that might be something you can get from non-psychedelic versions of these compounds. So I think the future needs to explore both of these pathways. And it could be that the best results come from, you know, for those who qualify, because not everyone would um, qualify because there are downsides and risks to a psychedelic session. It could be the best results come from having a psychedelic session followed by, you know, maybe the daily use of one of, you know, a pill that is based on the same structure and, and leads to a, a kind of a neuroplasticity that is operational over the short term, like a, a daily, you know, uh, effect. And so there's just a, a huge opportunity for in, in the future to explore these parameters. Um, it's it's a whole new, you know, landscape of, of drug development, what we're looking at here. Okay, well, very good. So what's the best way for people to follow the progress of the experiment? Maybe find out if they can even uh, join one of the trials. How do they get in touch? How do they find out more? Yeah, the best place to go uh, for any of our studies and to learn more about our studies, volunteer for studies, is to um, go to hopkinspsychedelic.org. Okay. And um, I guess last question. How, how do you feel like Hopkins is now perceived or this department that's working on it? Do you speak with colleagues in other departments or other people at the, you know, at Hopkins and do they, I don't know, do they joke about what you do? Do they have respect for it? Like, what's your perception of that? It's been a shifting landscape. I think the jokes are becoming less frequent or, you know, sometimes, you know, the joke is still there, but it's embedded with or followed up by, um, oh, but seriously, this is fascinating stuff. <laughs> you know, it's, so it's both, you know, um, and it's good to keep a sense of humor. Uh, and there are some great jokes to be had in this area. But yeah, that's it's. I think the respectability has continually grown, and people are just paying attention because the of the results that we're seeing. And I think folks really respect the fact that we take safety extremely seriously, and we have good mechanisms in place to mitigate. Um, so yeah, it's it's only increased. People understandably have been traditionally skeptical, um, but once they look into it, they realize that there's some evidence suggesting there's a a path forward here. There are really promising data and that we're doing um, everything possible uh, to 
to address the, the, the risks and to, to minimize them to an acceptable level. Well, that's great. Well, Matt, I appreciate you coming and the work that you're doing. It's going to be a big-time game changer for a lot of people. So thank you. Wonderful. Enjoyed uh, chatting with you, Richard. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you.